Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully. And welcome to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, where two reasonable social scientists analyze important topics by clearing away politics, opinions, and ideologies to get to the facts. I'm Allison Dagnus. I'm a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. How's it going today, Allie? It is going very well, Lawrence. Thanks. It is beautiful outside. We are we are approaching the end of the semester. Yay! Yay! Denmark, actually, I remember this from my, my junior year in Denmark. The um, They have sales, I think, like once or twice a year in Denmark. Like all of the stores have sales at the exact same time. And that's it. And at the end of this annual sale, it's called... <laughs> here's the problem. It is... it's. I think it's pronounced like sluspear, but it's, it's spelled slutspurt. <laughs> and they put it on all of the windows. And it took me a very long time to figure out why all of the windows of these stores would have slut spurt written on it. And what it means in literal translation is the final kick of a race. And so we're in the final kick of the race. We are in the slut spurt of our academic year. <laughs> it is the final kick of the race. So it is spring. It is slut spurt. And I'm feeling very good. And I'm assuming that you've you have Denmark on the mind because... Today, we are talking about economic inequality. We are. And yes, that is exactly right. I am thinking I'm thinking about the Danes, the great Danes, the, the not so great Danes. Um, <laughs> I'm just I'm, I guess I do have Denmark on the mind. It's a, it's a really fascinating topic, actually. It's something that I want to know more about. And I, I do know that you know quite a bit about income inequality and economic inequality, don't you? I do. My PhD is actually in social stratification. So a uh, big emphasis on economic and racial inequalities. And um, my time in Denmark when I was an undergrad, um, I was majoring in uh, eating Danish and also <laughs> meeting the Danish. So, you know, I, I will be able to proffer up my expertise in that field as well. So we will be able to go head to head. Oh, OK, well, very good. Well, where do you want to begin? Well, first of all, why don't you, you know, I think that, um, you know, we've had recent conversations about hamantashen. So that is my, <laughs> that's that I proffer that as my discussion about, you know, baked goods in Danish. Um, so why don't you begin by defining for me and perhaps those of us who need maybe a refresher on this, what is economic inequality? What's your definition of economic inequality? Well, I mean, on a very basic level, economic inequality refers to the unequal distribution of economic resources, such as income and wealth, between different groups in our society. Okay. Um, why, you know, besides the, you know, the simple basic, like, we should care about other people argument, because I think we should um, care about other people. I think there was recently... Some elected official who said, you know, why should I care about my neighbor? And I thought, well, that's a really terrible thing to say. <laughs> to say. Like, I think we should care about our neighbors. I'm looking out my window right now at my neighbors, and I, I like them very much. Um, besides that, just the basic humanity of it, why, why should we care about income inequality? Well, this is actually a really interesting and really fraught question. When liberals and conservatives fight about this topic, it's often over very subjective issues 
of morality and fairness that have no right or wrong answer. So liberals often see major gaps between groups as inherently unjust, while a common conservative retort is, do these gaps really matter? As long as those at the bottom have enough, why do we care if there are gaps? Why do we care how much those at the top have? And I personally don't wade into that part of the debate as a social scientist because these are subjective issues that my research can't settle, and so I think it's inappropriate for me to even weigh in. Where I can weigh in, though, is in the second part of that question. Why do we care if there are gaps? As a social scientist, I am interested in this question because there is a significant amount of evidence that these gaps matter beyond issues of morality and fairness. Okay, so what do you mean by that? Well, a considerable amount of research shows that economic inequality is associated cross-nationally with a long list of measures of societal well-being. And this includes academic performance, child well-being, drug abuse, educational attainment, incarceration, infant mortality, life expectancy, mental health, obesity, social mobility, teen pregnancy, trust, and violence. Now, when you look at this research, oftentimes we're not sure why this is the case, why this association exists. So it's not always the case that there's a direct cause, but there is an association, right? So as income inequality increases, you tend to see these measures getting worse cross-nationally. So living in society's burden with these problems, to me, is clearly a restriction on citizens' freedoms. You can, you can make an empirical case for that. We can all agree, for instance, that the absence of fear and the ability to pursue one's dreams, regardless of one's starting point in life, is not only desirable, but is, a, is an important aspect of freedom. I think both liberals and conservatives agree with that. And different societies, offer, they offer very different conditions in this regard. And another negative consequence of economic inequality um, that I think will interest you, Allie, is a number of scholars are really uh, concerned about the manner in which it impairs the functioning and distorts the priorities of government. Because in the U.S., money often equals a voice in the political system. So at least some scholars and a number of scholars um, are concerned that rising economic inequality undermines democracy in some important ways. Can you help me understand how we measure income inequality? Yes. Well, there are a variety of ways that you can measure it. And so I'll just give you a couple. Um, one is that you can just give a basic description of how much income or wealth different groups have. So um, I'll pick a, a, a period of time that had relatively low inequality in the U.S. compared to today. Um, thinking about wealth inequality first. So in the mid-1980s, the top 10% of Americans owned about 62% of the wealth. And that number has increased to 71% today. So it's gone up. So 10% of the country, 71% of the wealth. Okay. Now, if you look towards the bottom, one way people do it is to, to compare that top 10% to the bottom half of society. And these numbers are very small. So uh, in the mid-1980s, the bottom 50% of Americans owned 2.7% of the wealth. And today that number has dropped to 1.5%. So that's one way you can do it. You can look at income as well. 
And so I can pick a year that was relatively more equal, you know, compared to today. The early 1970s, the top 10% earned about 34% of the income. Today, that number has gone up to 46%. So it's approaching half. At the same time, in the early 1970s, the bottom 50% earned about 20% of the income. But the number has fallen to 13%. So already pretty unequal. And the gaps have grown over time. Well, that's, I mean, that's just horrible. I mean, that's just jaw dropping. Um, it, but you said that there was a, another measure. What's that other measure? Yeah. And there's a variety of measures. So these are two major ways that people measure income distribution and wealth distribution. Another way is a very technical term, and I won't get into the really technical details of how it's calculated, but it's called the Gini coefficient. And this takes into account how evenly or unevenly income and wealth are distributed across a population. And it's typically either measured by income or by wealth. So the values range from zero to one. And the higher the number, the more unequal the society, meaning that the more income, uh, the higher the number, the more income going to the top and the less going to the bottom. So if you had a Gini coefficient of zero, that would be perfect equality. All of the residents in your society would have the same income level. And a value of one would be perfect inequality, meaning one resident had all the income and everybody else got nothing. So what's the Gini coefficient in the United States? So if you look at, and there's some great data on this, you can go online, look at the OECD database. In the U.S., uh, the the uh, Gini coefficient is right now about 0 0.390, which places it at the top end among wealthy OECD countries. At the bottom end, you see countries like, you know, usual suspects, um, Norway at 0.262, you know, Denmark 0.264, and so on. So, very high in the U.S. compared to other wealthy countries. Is that bad? It depends on how you look at it, right? So um, if you're worried just about issues of fairness, and then we get into the very subjective debates about values and those sorts of things, um, that's one debate. But if you're worried about other things like, is it cutting off avenues to social mobility? Then yeah, that's not good. That's pretty high. What can we do about it? There's actually plenty that you can do to bring economic inequality down. And lots of countries are already doing these things. So we know that they work. Now, you can try to make the income distribution more equal on the front end or the back end. So some proposals are aimed at making the initial distribution, the money you initially earn, more equal. Whereas some proposals aim to redistribute after the fact through things like taxes and social programs. Some countries have much less inequality in the initial distribution of income, other countries rely on taxation and social programs, and of course, some rely on a mixture of the two. So, on the front end, we could restore the power of labor unions. That'd be one thing. Um, we could build a more robust vocational education system. We could create more democratic workplaces, increase the minimum wage. We could bolster the manufacturing sector where possible, um, adopt a universal healthcare system, etc. Things like that. Or you could look at the back end. So things like child allowances, for instance, which were recently in the news with Mitt Romney's proposal. Why does the US regularly have child poverty at 20% or higher, while other countries regularly have less than 5% of their children experiencing poverty? In Finland, the number is 
Well, a big reason is that many of these of these other countries just give resources to families who have children. And because of that, their child poverty rates are dramatically lower compared to the U.S. We could also adjust the tax system in a more progressive direction. So there's a lot that you can do. And as I mentioned, you can either do it on the front end or the back end. And when I said that there's already things that other countries are doing and we know they work, how we know that is because we can measure what their Gini coefficient is before the government steps in and taxes people and uh, gives them things through social programs and what it is after. And if after the government steps in through taxation and through government programs, uh, if inequality comes down as a direct result of that, we know those things are working and, and they do work. So in Denmark, for instance, before the government becomes involved with taxation and with government programs, their Gini coefficient is pretty high. It's 0.446. After the government becomes involved, it's 0.264. That's a 41% reduction. So that's a really big reduction in the Gini coefficient, a really big reduction in income inequality. In the U.S., before the government becomes involved with taxation, with social programs, the Gini coefficient is 0.505, which is really high. After the government taxes and transfers things through government programs, it uh, falls to 0.390, which is a 23% reduction. So, it's a reduction, but it's much less of a reduction in the Gini coefficient compared to countries like Denmark, which means that the government's just doing a lot less to reduce income inequality in the U.S. compared to uh, these other countries. Now, again, should we do this? That's a totally political decision. It's a subjective decision that's up to voters. I'm not here to make the case for or against doing these things. Um, I, that's not my role as a social scientist. I can't tell you, should we or should we not reduce income inequality? The things that I can do is I can tell you, number one, what are the negative consequences of having a high level of inequality in your country? And the second thing I can do is tell you, what are the types of things that countries do to reduce these things and, and, and do they work? And so that's how I see my role, not in settling the debate. That's up to voters. This is a democracy, right? And so these subjective questions of what our society should look at or how our society should look, that is up to the voters. That's not up to social scientists, right? It should never be up to social scientists. Um, but when voters decide, hey, we want to reduce this, you know, what are the negative consequences of having this problem? And what are the types of things that work? That's the role that I see social scientists playing. And that's what I can offer people through my research. So, okay, you, you have let the genie out of the bottle. You've said the magic word. Denmark. Um, okay. So when I did, I, okay. So I went to Denmark for my, my junior year abroad experience. And the big joke was I went abroad and I came back and I was still abroad. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and I really liked Denmark. I mean, it just, it seemed like a really cool place to go because everybody um, spoke English. And so I did not have to, I, I'm very not good at the ugly American. Here she comes. She only cares about speaking English and Slutsburg, making jokes yeah. about Slutsburg. No, no, it was Slutspurt. <laughs> oh, it was slut so Sorry. much grosser than Slutsburg. It was Slutspurt. Okay. It was so much grosser. Um, that is no, much grosser. It was it's so much grosser. I mean, I just I want to be very clear about how disgusting it was. Um, 
And that's not to say that Denmark was Denmark was lovely. Um, no, I am horrible. I am going to digress right now on a tangent for just one second. I am horrible at foreign languages when I realize like, oh, no, I am not going to get through graduate school um, by speaking any kind of methods. I was like, oh, crap, I'm going to have to take I'm going to have to take Spanish. And so I tried to take Spanish and thought, oh, no, I am never going to pass this Spanish exam. And I did not. I mean, I did not. And I tried to translate this section. And I was like, is is this section about group sex? Like, cause it, I, f- I think it's about group sex. And I was like, <laughs> it cannot be about group sex. And so I just, I translated it and I was like, I, I just ate that cannot be it. It was actually about group sex, oh but my. I, but I was like, this, this cannot be it. And so I just doubted myself because uh, my language skills are so terrible. So I knew um, you know, back in undergrad, like I can't go any place where, you know, language where I'm going to have to learn a foreign language. Cause I'm going to think everything's about group sex. And that just was not where I was. Uh, <laughs> and so they were like, come to Denmark. They speak English. I was like, yay. Um, and I did take a Danish class and it was more than just eating Danish. And I, so I learned, I thought I learned Danish. I did not, as it turns out, I did not learn Danish. Um, and I knew that because several years ago, I had two students who were exchange students from Denmark, and I decided to dazzle them with my skills, my oh, mad no. Danish skills. And so I said to them what I thought was, I'll have a beer, please. And they said, that's not Danish. <laughs> oh, dear. I thought... For all these years, I thought it was. Um, So apparently I did not remember correctly. I love Denmark. But one of the things that I love the most about Denmark was that in Denmark, the um, the range of incomes was very, very narrow. So there were very few and I mean, precious few, very, very rich people. And there were practically no poor people. Like there were no there were no homeless people in Copenhagen. Like you could try to be homeless. Uh, You could say like, okay, tonight I'm going to sleep on the street. But then like a Volvo would come around and like pick you up and take you someplace and get you a, (laughs) you know, a hot meal and shelter. And um, and, the you know, it was a very big it's a social welfare state. Right. So huge, huge taxes and huge government benefits. And so when I talk to my students about this and we talk about, you know, the social welfare um, states and about the social net, um, safety net. This I did check with my Danish students because I've been telling these stories for so long and also dazzling my students with my mad Danish skills <laughs> that, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that I was not lying. If I couldn't speak Danish, I wanted to make sure that I was not deceiving them. And they said, no, no, this all of the rest of this is is true, even though you do not speak a word of Danish. Um it was very it's it's very interesting. It's very antithetical to who we are as Americans, because in Denmark, you know, you college is college is not only free, but they pay students to go to college. So I lived in what was called the collegium, which is like the dorms with students who got a paycheck to go to college. So their tuition is paid for and they got a stipend. Um, because the whole idea is that an educated populace is a healthy populace, right? They had medical cards that, you know, everything was free, right? And so you wouldn't wait and wait and wait. If you were sick, you would just go to the clinic and swipe in your card and you would get seen. And so if something was very small, it didn't develop into something very big. That's what she said. And the whole idea is, you know, preventative care is a healthy populace. 
and, you know, on and on and on. And so um, at the time, Denmark was when I was there, it was the happiest country in the world. When I left, it was like the fifth happiest country in the world. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's still the happiest country in the world. Um, Seems like it'd be the opposite. Like they'd be happier when you were leaving. Oh, that's such a good point. Ah, joke was backwards. No, um, (laughs) it really, it just was a, everything was, um, everything was just on a much smaller scale, right? So, so houses, there were no like McMansions or regular mansions, um, or even just big houses, like, and the family of four would share one car. And that was just the way that, that everybody lived. And everybody took two months a year of vacation and everybody worked an eight hour workday. And if you worked more, people looked at you like you were insane. Like, why are you working this much? You work in order to go live a life. Um, two years of paid maternity or paternity leave. You know, it was this idea of like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't spend so much time, you know, being a crazy person. Like, go, you know, go explore, go travel, you know, go do whatever, you know, follow your bliss, have a, have a good life. And it just, because you didn't have to pay for some huge house and, you know, different cars and, um, my, my joke was always that the Danish version of cribs would be an actual crib, you know, and, and like in, you know, next to like a very small, you know, Ikea bed. Um, and that would, if it's a very short program, um, you know, that uh, it's just such a different way of thinking, right? That that we are so in this country. And by the way, like, I am not casting any aspersions here. Like I am the biggest capitalist in the world. Like my very, my deepest, closest friend in in the universe is the UPS guy. Uh, because I just, I order so much stuff. I just, I like my stuff. Uh, so much clothing. So, um, you know, I'm very acquisitive. Um, and I don't think that there's anything, you know, wrong with that. Obviously my husband, however, has different ideas. (laughs) All of that is to say, it's such a different mindset. So I will tell all this to my students and say, free college, they pay to go to college, free healthcare. You know, what do you think? They're like, we're all in. I'm like 75% taxation rates. They're like, we're not in anymore. <laughs> we're all out. We're out. <laughs> because you got to pay for it. I'm out, Jerry. Yep, I'm out. You know, I mean, <laughs> you got to pay for it somehow. And people just don't want to do that. You know, they just we in America, we just don't want to do that. We don't want the government involved. We don't want to pay for this stuff through taxes. And, you know, it's it's very antithetical to who we are as Americans. So as you were talking and going through like the different remedies, um, I'm just, you know, continuing to think like these sound like really good ideas. And I'm not sure that many Americans would really sign off on a lot of these. Well, and again, I said this earlier, but I just want to underscore this point, which is as a social scientist, I can't tell you what we should or shouldn't do. I shouldn't tell you how equal or unequal we should be. That's totally a subjective question that's up to the voters. Um, But I would just add that, you know, when you talk about Denmark and the U.S., those are two extremes. So among OECD countries, among wealthy countries, inequality in the U.S. is really high. And inequality in Denmark is is really low. But there's lots of countries in between. So you could reduce inequality without being Denmark. You could reduce inequality and be somewhere in the middle and not have the gigantic social welfare state that Denmark has. I think there are some broadly popular programs you could adopt. So you could make a much more robust vocational education system. 
so that it's it's much cheaper than going to college for people that college just isn't appropriate. They have another option that will get them a good job. I think that'd be a great place to spend our money. I know there's another program that I know isn't quite as popular, but it just always baffles me that we don't adopt universal health care because it's cheaper, right? So you could pay a lot less money and still get the same quality. So the UK, they spend 42% per person on health care uh, compared to the US and get comparable quality in their health care. Germany spends 61%. In the US, it always baffles me that we'd rather pay more as long as it's our own choice to pay that money for something rather than pay less, get the same quality, but pay for it in the form of a tax. Now, I know that's you know not as popular, but going back to the, the previous uh, uh, program that I talked about, vocational education, I think that's just a, a win-win. I think that's, that's just a, a um, I, I don't know, to me, that's just a no-brainer, right? Like give people an option that's, that's, that's cheaper, that's for folks that college just isn't the answer. I think that's one way to get folks, you know, good sort of middle of the road paying jobs. Um, it's a good place to spend money. We we have been we have we have been raised to hate taxes, right? We have just, I mean, that's just how we have been raised. You know, it's you know, get government out of my Medicare. We've been raised to hate this, and and so as as horrible as as many of us think the government is. Um, I think that's always going to be a hard sell because it goes against what we really, you know, it's it's not even something, it's something that we are just viscerally primed to feel, right? It's our truthiness now. The taxes are bad. Doesn't matter what they're for. They're just bad. And so we know that they're bad the way that we know that the sports team that we don't like, they're bad too. Man. We have a look if this podcast is going to solve all of the problems of the world. And I believe we are because that, of course, is, you know, why we're doing this one to at solve a time, all one of the problem problems. at a time. <laughs> OK, um, then. OK, then today we are going to solve income inequality. Which... Well, before we before we solve that problem, can I say one thing, Allie? I wish you would. You, you haven't mentioned this on our pod, but um, I happen to know that your husband went through a pretty serious surgery recently. He did on his spine, right? Can you did, uh, yes. can you give us an update on Pete and how he's doing? <laughs> he is he is so broken. Um, and I just for the record, I was not the one who broke him. Okay, <laughs> you you want to talk? You hate the government? Okay, here's a reason to hate the government. He was in the army for 25 years. That broke him. Uh, the United States government broke him. Um, so his back is so messed up. He had the same back surgery that Tiger Woods had a bunch of years ago where there's like a cage. They put a cage around his spine and like filled it with stuff. This is very technical, I know, and I'm using <laughs> a lot of jargon. So sorry if I'm losing you. Um, and so that was I need more stuff. <laughs> exactly. Like, <laughs> I need 10 cc's of stuff <laughs> for the for the cage. Um, but that's really what it is. And and so it was very successful for Tiger Woods. He went on to win a master's after that. Um, so Pete had the same thing done and everybody was joking with him like, well, now you got to go on and win the, a master's. That's and right. Like, oh, my God. If you don't, no, just, you're lazy. That's exactly yeah. right. Well, yeah, I mean, there's that. Um, He's like, no, I just now I have to live with my wife for, you know, another couple of years. Um, so that was at the bottom of his spine. And so this latest round was at the top of his spine. Um, and so it's so, um, slightly gross in that they went in 
through the front, like through, they cut his neck open and put a cage over his spine at the front, like at the top through his neck. So he looks like Frankenstein. <laughs> He's got like this, this like scar <laughs> at the front. It's really not funny, but it's, it's kind of funny. Um, and so, uh, he is not allowed to lift anything heavier than a gallon of milk. Oh my. And, um, so in the course of all of this, um, I moved our daughter Maddie home from college, um, by myself. And, uh, that turned out to be, um, just a total hilarious disaster in that she, cause she, when she went away to college, like she would, she packed up so beautifully. I was like, oh my God, like my child is a genius. This is going to be the easiest. Like she's so easy. Like my 15 year old is just a delight, but also not that easy. So yay. I was given by, by the, the, by the gods, I was given this very easy child. So I, I, drive to school and she's like, I packed everything up. And and she had packed everything up in all of the Amazon boxes that she had received this semester, <laughs> which would have taken three Amazon trucks to take home. Um, and I did not have three Amazon trucks. I had one Honda SUV. So uh, so I brought like the first load out and realized, oh my God, like this is not going to work. Um, and so I was uh, alternating, screaming at her like a crazy person. Um, emptying all of those boxes out, you know, breaking down all those boxes, repacking stuff in a way that made some sense and was not like by color or feel or mood. <laughs> I'm not really sure how she packed all of it, like whether it was the day of the week or, you know, sensory perception. And then also like making like nice, happy, polite conversation with her boyfriend's parents, because that was also the first time I had met them. Oh um, yeah, it was just it was it was everything. and. Um, so it was it was every emotion you could possibly have all at once. <laughs> and my husband was at home and um, he kept calling me like, how's everything going? I'm like, I will murder you with my bare hands. <laughs> he was like, OK, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> I was like, you know, don't don't let me get near your neck. <laughs> he was like, OK, love you. Bye. Um, so that's great. He's fine. Thanks. Thank you for asking. I'm sure everybody wanted that very long. Very long uh, explanation. How, long, uh, how much longer till he's back to full health? I That's a good question. I know that he he's going to the doctor for a checkup. He's moving around fine now, which is good, but he's still not allowed to, to really lift anything. So I think he starts physical therapy next week. And if past is prologue, I think we have like another month or so before he's really allowed to start doing stuff. Um, the good news is, you see, your children are very young and my children aren't. And at this point, I see them as staff. <laughs> so we taught my 15 year old how to mow the lawn. So she's been mowing the lawn for us, which is great. And um, and now that my now 19 year old, it feels weird to say, is home from college, like and she has a car and she can drive around like she's also really, really super helpful. So having both girls be very helpful has been has been outstanding. So it's been, you know, it is good. We're, we're covering down with our Buick sized dog and uh, we're making sure that the house does not fall apart around us. And, uh, and Pete is recovering slowly, but surely. And once again, and for the lawyers, I 
did not break him. This is not my fault. <laughs> I swear to God, he actually, I, I've treated him very well. I I know that I come off as a lot. He he actually benefits greatly from, from being married to me. Well, from myself and from listeners in 40 countries around the world, I say to the Dagnuses, we wish you all well as oh, quickly as possible. Thank you. Thank you. And best of luck to Pete. <laughs> For having to be married to me. <laughs> and independently of his injury, yes. Best of, best of luck, Pete. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and also, one last thing. I just want to call you out as a liar. Um, real quick, before we move on, you were saying something about Denmark and like one of your favorite things was uh, that, you know, the income distribution, you know, the inequality was much less and and that, you know, it was a happier society. I'm calling BS. Your favorite thing was French fry vending machines. That is 100% true. It really was the French <laughs> French fry vending machines and the hot dog carts, the Polska carts outside with the sauce that they squirted into the bun. I'm telling you, that stuff was gold. God, I really miss that. I still think about it. I like food. You should stay up at our next faculty meeting and just make a stand. I will. That's I will what, not that's, go on without French fry vending machines. <laughs> next next contract negotiations. I feel like the future of higher ed. We faculty are in a very strong position to start making demands like that. We Wait, will be Allie, we will be heard. What are we striking for? French, <laughs> French fry vending machines. Allie, I don't think this is going to be a good sell. Shut I up, Lawrence. This is, this is it. This is what we're going to die. This is the hill we're going to die on. And it's made of grease and potatoes. <laughs> I'm on your tenure and promotion committee, Lawrence. Shut up. Everyone wants this. I can do surveys too, Lawrence. <laughs> okay. With that, I think we should and bring with on that, our distinguished oh, guest. Income inequality. Oh, okay. No, it's it's a good thing. And it's a it's a really interesting topic. So let's do it. Today, we are joined by Richard Wilkinson, a very accomplished and internationally acclaimed inequality scholar. Richard studied at the London School of Economics before training in epidemiology. He has published a number of peer-reviewed articles, as well as multiple books, including the best-selling The Spirit Level, which explores economic inequality and its consequences for societies. Richard is Professor Emeritus of Social Epidemiology at the University of Nottingham Medical School, Honorary Professor at University College London, and currently teaches at the University of York in England. We are very thrilled to be joined by such a distinguished and knowledgeable guest today, Richard Wilkinson. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. Okay, Richard, let's start with a question that I posed at the top of the show, and I'd be interested to get your reaction to it. Who cares how much money the top has as long as the bottom has enough? Who cares about the gaps in between? What would be your response to that statement? It's not principally about having too much or too little uh, in itself. It's about the, uh, what, the effect on, on social relations of having very different amounts you know, if, if some people have rather little and others have uh, huge amounts, uh, it has very profound effects on, on social relations. It damages cohesion. It damages trust. It leads to more violence. One of the ways that you describe it, and I really like the way you, you describe the impact that inequality has on society, is you say that it's socially corrosive. I wonder if you could just expand upon that idea. 
Well, there are now a number of studies which uh, show that um, with uh, bigger income differences, countries or American states with bigger income differences, uh, community life is weaker. People are less likely to join voluntary associations, to read local newspapers, to uh, be involved in voluntary activities, to know their neighbors, all that kind of thing. Um, but also trust goes down. Uh, measures like um, whether people agree that most people would take advantage of them if they got the chance. Uh, a much higher proportion of the population in more unequal societies feel that's true. Um, uh, other questions like, um, do you agree most people can be trusted? Uh, a much lower proportion feel they can trust others in more unequal societies. There are also studies um, now of uh, people's willingness to help each other, to help old people or the disabled, and that shows a decline with inequality. Um, I sometimes point out that um, in more equal societies, there's a strong sense of reciprocity, of neighborliness, public spiritedness. Uh, and what you see is, is the disappearance of all that with rising income inequality. Um, and of course, I've just been studying the rich developed countries. But if you look at much more unequal societies, like Mexico or South Africa, um, you find it's gone a stage further. You know, those countries are much more unequal than United States or Britain. And the result is that house after house, uh, you see the windows are barred, the doors are barred, the great fences around their yards and razor wire and stuff like that. So you end up not only with that loss of co cohesion and neighborliness, but with a, a, people being afraid of each other. And I, I find it particularly interesting that a study looking at the proportion of the labor force in what's called um, guard labor, uh, people like police force, um, uh, security staff, prison officers, you find that they are a much larger proportion of the population, of the working population in more unequal societies. Because if you can't trust other people, if you're afraid of violence, uh, you need more of those people who we use to protect ourselves from each other. Um, and it, it's, it's a terrible picture. Because if you look instead at studies of happiness and well-being, uh, you see that crucial is the quality of social relations. And that's exactly where inequality does its uh, most obvious damage. Richard, I want to ask you a question. Obviously, <clears throat> myself and Allie and, and folks like you and people who listen to the show are most interested in the data, in what the big macro level data says about different countries and those kinds of comparisons. So that's what we'll focus on most. But um, as somebody who's a fan of your work and has heard you speak a number of times, um, I've heard you on several occasions describe the way the inequality feels to you, Richard Wilkinson, as you travel around the world. Um, so you describe 
you know, you describe the, the different incomes that different groups have, you describe the guard labor, all that kind of stuff. And all that's great in terms of the data. But you say that when you go from like the U.S. to Britain, to Sweden, to different countries, you yourself, Richard Wilkinson, can think of examples of like on the street, just feeling the social, the socially corrosive impact in different societies. Can you describe how inequality feels in different countries just, just to you? Yes, I, uh, I, I remember very well when there was a bigger difference in inequality between Britain and the United States when we were much more equal, we're only now slightly more equal than the United States. And I remember um, finding out how often, and if you ask someone the way to somewhere, if you're walking down the sidewalk, uh, they'll back away from you uh, before answering, um, as if they were fear, fearful that you were going to grab something or hit them or something. Um, I, I've, I remember other occasions where people were unwilling to engage in a sort of sociable way because of their fear. Um, even uh, fear of me as a stranger uh, uh, talking to them. Um, whereas I think in a more equal society, people are actually rather glad to be asked um, the way somewhere or advice or something like that. Um, people like to help each other uh, when they don't have that fear. But I think it's you also um, feel if you're walking home alone at night um, on the streets, uh, in some societies, you have to be very aware of who's on the street around you, um, and particularly women, of course. Um, whereas in other societies, I find, for instance, when I uh, go to Scandinavian countries, maybe to give a talk or something, uh, that tension is just not there. You don't have to be aware of, of who's, who's on the street. Um, and I think that you pick that up in some rather strange, ill-defined way. I remember my son when I was living in, in Nottingham in, in England, uh, which was a, a town with uh, high levels of violence. Um, and he came from a... He'd been living in a more, um, a more sociable town. And uh, he immediately said um, when he went out in the evening that it's quite tense on the street. You know, there are real differences between places and they do go to a surprising extent. They go with inequality. I once heard you tell a story about being in the U.S. and trying to find a house for dinner or something like that. And you you couldn't find it. So you went to knock on the door of a different house and see if you could borrow the phone. Do you remember that story? I was invited to dinner by by friends, and when I turned up at that house, at their house, I I got no response, knocking at the door and so on, and uh, um, I, I hadn't got a phone, and so I went to a neighbour, knocked on the um, door there and explained my predicament. I'd been asked to dinner and nobody seemed to be there. And I wanted to, wondered if I could use their phone and try ringing these people. Um, 
And there was all this nervousness. There was a, a teenage boy outside who I'd asked initially. And uh, although I was only wearing a T-shirt and uh, uh, jeans or something, he backed away from me. He went inside, um, shutting the door, and uh, talked to his mother. Uh, eventually, she opened the door. And uh, so I told a story to her, and she did, after a while, hand me a phone. Um, but uh, I'd, there was no question of me coming in or anything like that. And uh, I know, Britain had a very big rise in inequality under uh, Margaret Thatcher, particularly in the 1980s and early 90s. Um, and we've become a much more antisocial society since then. So it's it's now easier for me to understand those worries and responses um, than it than it was then. I watched your TED talk and enjoyed it very much. So I I want to direct our listeners to um, go watch that because it really is just a wonderful wonderful video. Um, but in it, you had many great lines. My favorite of which was about. Denmark, um, because I did my junior year in Denmark and absolutely loved the place. And there, there's just, there's so many great things about Denmark. Um, I personally really enjoyed the French fry vending machines in the main, uh, train station. I found those to be terrific. Um, but it felt, oh, <laughs> let me tell you something that, and then the hot dog carts that are outside, that's dinner. Right. I was, a, I was a poor college student and I was a very happy, very chubby poor college student because of that. Um, absolutely delicious. Uh, but folks were really nice, uh, very helpful, very warm and welcoming. And the standards of living were very different. And, um, you know, there wasn't the there were not the extremes. There were there were not a lot of wealthy people. Uh, there were practically no poor people. Um, and, and it seemed to me that most of the Danes were kind of in the middle and really okay with having, you know, a, a man and a partner and two kids and the two kids would share a bedroom and the man and the partner would share a bedroom and that was their house. And they didn't need a five bedroom home with a guest suite and a, you know, and a pool. They didn't need all of the things that Americans, you know, think that we need. Um, and yet uh, there was a lot of really good shopping and a lot of, you know, commerce. It certainly was not, it did not feel that anybody was deprived. So the line that I loved very much from your TED talk was that if Americans want to um, fulfill the American dream, they should move to Denmark. I thought, well, that's exactly right. Um, not only will people be happier and they'll get better French fries from vending machines, um, maybe they will actually sort of see what, you know, what the American dream maybe should be focusing on, which is, you know, certainly having capitalism and commerce, but just maybe a, a happier way of going about it. Could you expand on on what you meant? Because I don't think you meant the the French fry part. <laughs> no, I didn't. So I'm sure I'd enjoy them. <laughs> I was talking about social mobility, um, uh, intergenerational social mobility, 
and particularly how much your parents' income uh, determines uh, your um, wealth and um, income and so on uh, through your career. Um, and basically, the measure, what it's telling you is whether rich parents have rich uh, children and poor parents have poor children, or whether parents' income doesn't make very much difference. And in the US, um, parental income is a very powerful determinant of uh, how you do in your life. Um, whereas in, in Denmark, it's much less important. And you see that graded relationship uh, with inequality. So the more inequality between parents, the more powerful parental income is as a, as a determinant of, uh, of your own life course, your own trajectory. Um, so basically, the, the American dream in, uh, is an idea that anyone can become president, and, uh, an idea of huge social mobility, is not true. Um, America has, because of its inequality, less social mobility than most other rich developed market democracies. Could you tell us what do you think are the factors that are the most responsible for the growing inequality in various developed countries? Well, it's quite a controversial field, but um, there is a very um, close relationship between trends in inequality internationally and trends in um, uh, the strength of the whole labor movement um, and the uh, strength of social democratic parties. Um, basically, um, inequality is high in the 1920s, starts to fall in most developed countries in the 1930s, and there's a decline in inequality from then right through to the late 1970s. And then we get the modern rise in inequality uh, from the 1980s onwards. Um, still continuing in, in many countries. Um, and that uh, fits very closely with, for instance, the proportion of the population, the working population in, in trade unions. Um, and uh, I, I don't think it's simply that trade union membership transforms your income. I think that trade union membership is a, a, an indicator of that sort of countervailing idea that our societies can work in a, a better way, a way which is produces a qualitatively better uh, quality of life for the vast majority of us. Um, uh, and I think that, that, that it's the political ideology um, that is the most powerful determinant of uh, inequality um, you, with neoliberal economics, free market fundamentalism, and uh, uh, you get a reduction in top tax rates, huge reductions. I mean, in, in the United States and Britain in the 60s and 70s, top tax rates, I think, were at least 80% of the marginal tax rates on, on the, the very rich. Uh, and uh, now half that, or in some places less. 
Um, so uh, not only did they re reduce those top tax rates, but they uh, passed legislation to weaken trade union power. Um, and I, I think that uh, is an important source of, of the damage. There's this great book called Our Kids by Robert Putnam that I would encourage anybody who's interested in this topic to take a look at. And what you see in that book is you find that as income inequality increases in the U.S., other things have changed as well for different groups in very different ways. So, for instance, take a look at single parenthood. For folks who are poor, folks in the working class, the, the single parenthood rates have gone through the roof, but they haven't changed all that much for people at the top. Take a look at college graduation. The likelihood of graduating from college has gone through the roof for folks at the top, but it hasn't changed all that much for folks at the bottom. So what that means is as inequality increases, you know, the inequality itself poses its own problems, but it's impacting other areas of people's lives like single parenthood, like college graduation. That's only reinforcing that inequality. It's really a huge problem. Yes, what I think is happening is that uh, the bigger material divide uh, of income inequality uh, makes class and status more important. We judge each other um, more by by class and status. You know, um, the social hierarchy appears to be a hierarchy. Um, and I think that the people on the highest incomes regard themselves almost as a different race. But you see the uh, divisive effects of class and status becoming more important uh, in that um, you be people become less ma likely to marry someone from a different class background um, in a more unequal society. Uh, residential segregation between rich and poor increases. Uh, and as we've already discussed, social mobility declines. So class and status become sort of ossified. Um, the whole society becomes more rigid in, in those terms. Um, I think that's what's going on. Everyone talks as if we want to get rid of class differences. Uh, that these are awkward, embarrassing things that we feel are not quite fair and so on. And yet uh, they don't realize that if we're going to get rid of class differences, if we're going to reduce the extent, for instance, that um, class background uh, determines educational outcomes amongst children, um, or uh, get rid of the extent to which um, university entrants um, are so biased by by class and status, by wealth. Um, if we're going to do that, uh, then we have to reduce the material differences between us. Do you have any recommendations of things that would be beneficial as we try and bridge these gaps that we have? Um, I do think we have to do uh, as much as we can to redistribute income uh, through taxes and benefits. But uh, uh, even more important, I think, is to reduce the inequalities in income before taxes and benefits. I talked about the way the top incomes took off 
Um, and I do think that was because of uh, uh, the decline of, of trade union power um, and uh, a different sort of ethic in society uh, that, that went with uh, aspirations of social democratic parties and so on. Um, I, I think now we must move towards uh, extending democracy into the um, uh, into working life, into the economy. Um, so many countries have legislation for employee representation on company boards. It's often just token representation, but I think uh, in some countries it's it's stronger than that. But uh, I think our long-term aim has to be to extend democracy. Uh, the old communist countries uh, tried to um, create more equality by reducing democracy um, and ended up with police states and sacrificing freedom of speech. Uh, I think we must use the opposite method uh, of extending democracy um, not only employee representation, but more cooperatives, incentives to uh, to cooperatives and employee-owned companies, uh, things like that. Uh, we've recently had a, um, a public outcry against uh, uh, owners of some of the really important football clubs all over Europe, uh, owned often by the super-rich who bought them, um, much like companies are bought and sold. Uh, but in some countries, including, I think, Germany, uh, just about all the football uh, clubs are owned at least 50% by their members, by the supporters. Um, and a few in Britain, I think very few, are owned and run by supporters. Um, but, you know, that's just another example of the kind of extension of democracy we need. Um, but we have to deal with tax evasion um, and tax havens. We need international cooperation to do that. Um, so, uh, and, and the, the job in front of us is, is enormous. It's not going to be cured in, in uh, two years or five years. Um, to become as equal as the Scandinavian countries were, um, we really have enormous amount of ground to make up. And there is no reason to think that uh, we wouldn't benefit from becoming more equal than they were. But of course, a number of them, like Sweden, have been moving in the wrong direction rather, rather rapidly. Um, and... Uh, the social costs of that have um, have begun to show. Using taxation and using government programs to solve the problem of income inequality, uh, one of the responses that wealthy people often have is to take their money outside of the country. So you would have to then also address tax havens, which is no small problem. You can't do that on your own. That's going to require some pretty significant international cooperation, right? <laughs> Yes, I think it's clear that in more and more areas we need to replace international co competition by international cooperation. Um, whether we're talking about the power of multi multinationals that run circles around national governments 
many multinationals are, are worth more than whole countries, um, have turnovers bigger than the GNP of, of whole countries. Um, but we need uh, uh, cooperation, most obviously, to deal with the problems of the climate crisis, um, the tax havens on inequality, um, and I think also, and it seems to me we've got to a point where we really do have to run international relations quite differently. Our government has recently decided to uh, increase uh, very substantially uh, the amount of money it's spending on, on nuclear weapons um, while cutting aid to developing countries, um, things like water aid and so on. So, you know, if we were paying the amount we should be uh, to get the vaccines uh, against COVID uh, to uh, the vast populations of countries that we will be threatened if, if they're not immunized because there will be more mutations and so on, um, we must get the money to those countries to also to convert their technology to low carbon uh, technologies. Um, we must uh, make sure the money isn't being sorted away in uh, other things instead of uh, helping the development of those countries. Um, so I think we've got to a point where more than ever before, we need to change the conduct of international relations and realize that we are one humanity and we face these problems together. We can't escape from the problems that are happening in India now. Um, and if, it's, if COVID isn't controlled there, we will get new mutations that make our vaccines irrelevant. Um, and we all have to be vaccinated with new vaccines uh, or, or if we start to do something about our own carbon emissions, uh, if those countries uh, don't, uh, aren't helped to take on a different course of development, um, uh, a low carbon technology, then again, our efforts will be worthless. Um, uh, so I, I think it's so clear and people do believe it will lead to a lot more conflict, international armed conflict, um, uh, as people fight fight over water supplies and, and things like that. And you get vast swathes of the population who um, migrate from places where agriculture becomes impossible and so on. Um, we just have to tackle all this differently. Richard, I'm always interested in uh, people's view of the U.S. from afar. So I was wondering from your vantage point across the pond, um, what did our recent discourse about race and the recent events in the U.S. around race and racial inequality, what did that look like from afar? Well, the Black Lives Matter movement, of course, spread from the states around the world. Uh, and it's been strong here. And I think it's it's very encouraging to see uh, how much the opinions of 
the white population in the states have been changed by the demonstrations and so on. Uh, and I think it's important evidence that demonstrations do make a difference. And with Extinction Rebellion demonstrating on issues around the climate crisis, we see the same effect. Uh, it really does make a difference to public opinion. And uh, we saw it with the Occupy movement. It raised the whole issue of inequality uh, into the public arena. And uh, it, it, it's gone on being an important issue in, even in the extraordinarily right-wing press we have. How does the American healthcare debate look from afar? Do we look kind of crazy? I mean, the UK, Germany, they have healthcare that's comparable in quality to the US, but in the UK, you spend 42% of what we spend per person, and in Germany, they spend 61%. So, what is the reaction to the American healthcare debate from afar? It does look crazy, yes. Um, <laughs> To be, and you talk about the cost, and of course it's a societal cost in the states. The individuals pay it. Um, I had uh, surgery for uh, colon cancer um, in 2019, and uh, there were no costs to me at all. Um, uh, the only cost we paid was my wife. You know, parking in the multi-story car park next to the hospital when she visited me. <laughs> that literally was the only cost. Um, and uh, um, it, I went to my uh, general practitioner, the local, uh, our local doctor, um, when I had almost no symptoms at all. And it was properly identified with blood tests and uh, scans and so on, and action taken uh, before I ever felt ill. And so the whole issue of the cancer, um, I had perhaps two or three days of uh, a bit of discomfort after as I recovered from surgery. But that was all. Um, so you can have... Uh, public medicine that really sat, uh, works efficiently um, is, of course, has found the COVID epidemic uh, very difficult. But the vaccination in Britain, uh, that we've, we've done more of it faster than any other country, uh, is largely due to the fact that uh, the health service uh, organized that. And they already had systems. We all get our flu vaccine and so on each year. Um, so I, I think that um, there are many advantages. Uh, and you know, disease is like all sorts of things. That if there are some unhealthy people in society, it puts others at risk. Um, uh, even the rich benefit if everyone uh, is uh, um, well treated and um, well, I, I think so many of these problems, the rich can't escape them. So the pattern of having more violence in uh, uh, more uh, unequal society, more higher homicide rates. It's not just the poor who suffer the effects of homicide. 
uh, the rich have higher homicide rates as well, and as victims of violence. Um, so I, I think the endless different problems associated with inequality that are more common problems that are more common at the bottom of society, but the rich are not uh, don't escape the effects of the, those problems. They're smaller amongst the rich. The effects of inequality are smaller amongst the rich, uh, but they are affected by the problems that are so common in the, the rest of society. Okay, well, before we go, you wrote a wildly successful book, The Spirit Level. And could you tell us about your newest book, The Inner Level? Yes, uh, and I think we felt that despite the um, unexpected success of our um, uh, earlier book, that um, although we'd shown the endless damaging effects of inequality, people regarded the problems um, made worse by inequality as out there in society. And I think there's a an assumption that most of us probably have that all that really matters to us is our own personal life, uh, our close friends, our family, uh, our own uh, um, mood and feelings of confidence or lack of it and so on. Um, and so I wanted to make people aware that inequality actually has powerful effects, uh, emotional and mental health effects. Um, and one of the most obvious ways it does so is that if you live in a society where some people are regard as, regarded as supremely important and others are regarded as almost worthless, uh, we all judge each other more by wealth and money. You know, are you somebody I need to respect and uh, look up to, or are you trash? Um, and with that, we start worrying more about how we are judged. And so what happens is that uh, the idea that some people are worth so much more than others um, undermines our own sense of self-worth. It makes us less secure about that more worried about others' judgments, how we're seen and judged. So it become, social contact becomes more stressful. What are they going to think of me? Am I going to have anything sensible to say? Um, will they think I'm stupid and boring? Uh, do I seem unattractive? All those self-doubts come crowding in, and you can see the effect on people's concern with self-presentation in endless different ways. Um, I mean, in, in, in women, you see um, cosmetic surgery going up with inequality. Um, you see people becoming more narcissistic, but you also see people uh, who find actually those uh, the social judgments, the worries about how they're seen and judged, uh, fill them with too much anxiety. And so they, they withdraw from social relationships. And so what you see is people um, who avoid going to, to parties and meeting others, um, and social forms of social anxiety increase, depression increases, but also um, other mental illnesses 
which go with narcissism and bigging yourself up and so on. Uh, there's a lot of very good evidence of the way in which uh, as a society which uh, where this vertical dimension becomes so important uh, feeds into a number of mental illnesses and personality disorders, um, exacerbating some and triggering others. Um, and you see it, and the most obvious, I suppose, connection is um, that um, violence is again and again triggered by feeling people feeling disrespected, looked down on, loss of face, and feeling humiliated. Uh, and the one way of making people respect you, uh, if you have no other, is through violence. Um, and uh, I think that is the main explanation of why um, uh, homicides are so much higher in more unequal societies, shown by studies all over the world. Richard Wilkinson, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a fascinating conversation, and I learned a tremendous amount. Well, thank you for having me and uh, helping get these ideas into the public arena. It's uh, important work you do. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com. There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources, our guide to reliable news outlets, the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows, and more. That's utterlymoderatenetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. And until then, we'll play you out with friends of the show, the Riders in the Sky. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again Trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you. Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.